Well, let me encourage you to have your Bible open at the book of Ezra. Now, it always helps with these Old Testament books to set them into their proper historical context. Some of you will be very much aware of how Ezra fits into the Old Testament story, but perhaps for some of you it's all a little bit of a mystery. So let's try and just uh, bring some understanding for all of us and see what's going on here. So this message this morning, being the introduction to the whole series, is going to be kind of half sermon, half history lesson, I guess. If you didn't like history lessons at school, I'm sorry about that, but we're going to begin with a bit of a history lesson, which hopefully will help to set the context for you. And then we can get into our studies of the text of Scripture and see exactly what it is that God can teach us from how he dealt with his people all those years ago. Well, let's begin with a map. And let's just explain where all this is taking place, for those of you who aren't too sure. So so there's a a map of uh, all the main regions of what we would call today the Middle East. And that map, quite helpfully... I need to turn it on. Okay. You should know by now that people like me need to have these things turned on for them beforehand. There we go. Uh, Right in the middle there is Jerusalem. Okay. So helpfully right at the centre of the map is Jerusalem. And you'll hear me mention in a moment uh, the Assyrians. The Assyrians were those who finished off the northern kingdom of Judah, of Israel, the ten tribes of Israel. And the Assyrians were up here, almost directly north, at the top there, and they came down. There's Nineveh from the Jonah story, and they came down and defeated the northern part of Israel, the ten tribes up here. And they were no more. We'll hear about that in a moment, see how that fits into the story. And then we read of uh, Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. Well, here's the city of Babylon up here. This whole region was the Babylonian Empire and they gradually moved west and eventually came right through to the Mediterranean Sea and conquered Jerusalem. And many exiles were taken from Jerusalem here up to Babylon and the whole Babylonian region. We're also going to hear about Cyrus, the king of Persia. There's the Persians there. And he was in cahoots with Darius, the king of the Medes. So they're two neighbouring countries up here at the top right, the Medes and the Persians. And they would actually defeat the Babylonian Empire and take over. And it's Cyrus of the Persians who we read of making that decree to send the people home. And if you want to help fix that in modern geographical, political landscape, uh, what was Babylon here is modern-day Iraq. What was Persia up here is modern-day Iran. And the Babylonian Empire here also covered... All this is Saudi Arabia today. So the Babylonian Empire also covered the northern part of what we know today as Saudi Arabia. So that's how it all fits in on the map. And that's where all these things were taking place in this story. And let's go through uh, 
a few dates. Let's begin with a few dates, just to help you follow the timeline through. So these, of course, are all dates BC. Okay. We have the, the reigns of Kings David and Solomon. And they reigned over a united kingdom of Israel. But then, after Solomon, there was a huge dispute as to who should be the king next. And the nation became divided over that issue. Ten tribes in the north, retaining the name of Israel. Two tribes in the, in the south, Judah and Benjamin, based in Jerusalem still. And because Judah was the larger of those two tribes, they get known as Judah. And so as you read through the books of 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, you read the history of those two separate kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, each with their own succession of kings. And that divided kingdom commenced 931 BC. The next significant date is 722 BC. That's when the northern kingdom of Israel was defeated by the Assyrians. They were no more. Many of those people intermarried with all the people in those pagan nations in the north. And they became the Samaritans. Spiritual mongrels, if you like. Which is why they are so despised in the New Testament by the pure Jews. 606, Babylon begins its dominion over Judah. First of all, by taking captives into exile. They did it in dribs and drabs under Nebuchadnezzar. Didn't all happen in one go. But 606 is when it began and when the first exiles were taken. So Ezekiel was amongst those exiles. If you're familiar with the stories of Daniel in the lion's den... His three friends in the fiery furnace, they were all exiles in Babylon and that's when those stories took place. 586 BC, that's when Nebuchadnezzar brought his conquest of Judah to its completion and the final ransacking of the temple and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem took place. During this time, God had one main man who was his prophet in Jerusalem, and that was Jeremiah. And Ezekiel was appointed as his prophet amongst the exiles. Then there's another very significant date, certainly for the Babylonians, because in 539, the Medes and the Persians overthrow the Babylonian Empire. The king of the Medes is Darius, and the king of the Persians is Cyrus. The very next year, 538, Cyrus issues his decree permitting the Jews to return to Jerusalem, to go back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And in 536, 70 years after the first exiles were taken to Babylon, the first of those exiles returned to Jerusalem. So there's the context for this whole thing. And it might appear that 
surely all of God's plans for Israel are now just lost. What about those great promises that were made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? What about all that great promise and optimism that was there in those days? Why would God allow this to happen? Having made such promises. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Secondly, who is this man Ezra? Who is he? Well, we don't know a huge amount about him. But we know a few things. So if you've got Ezra open, just flick forward a few chapters to chapter 7. Because it's there that we're actually introduced to him. And it's there that we learn a few things about him. Now by this point in the book, there's, there's another man who's now the king of Persia. Um, you thought Ahasuerus was a great name to get your mouth around. Well, Artaxerxes isn't much better, is it? Artaxerxes is now king of Persia. Ezra, son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah. All these ayahs might not mean much to you. Why is that important? We'll keep reading to the end of verse 5. The son of Aaron, the chief priest. These genealogies are really important in Old Testament history because it says a lot about God's plan and what God is doing and who he's using. He's from a priestly family. And he's a priest who knows and loves and serves his God. That's important too. He's, he's from that chosen line. Because God, God hasn't forgotten or abandoned all that's been put in place. He's still working. He's still working. And he has another man to play his role in this story. Ezra. From this priestly family. And we read that he was a skilled scribe, verse 6, in the law of Moses, which was given the God of Israel. So, of course, really, all that Ezra had was what we today know as the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. But he knew them. He's a skilled scribe in the law. What does that tell us? Well, put in layman's terms, he's a man who knows his Bible. He's a man who spent time reading his Bible. He's a man who understands his Bible. Do you? Will you give yourself, like Ezra did, to the study of God's word? Because it's going to be of huge benefit to Ezra. And the king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. So here's who Ezra is. Now the exiles, as we'll see, did not return to Jerusalem all in one go. The exiles would actually turn to Jerusalem in three main phases. We'll see that as we go through the story. 
the first group of exiles who returned to Jerusalem, they were led by a man named Zerubbabel. Ezra would lead the second group back into Jerusalem. And we're told something very, very important about the spiritual state of this man. Now, we'll come back to this verse in future weeks because it's really important. Look at verse 10. Ezra had prepared his heart. Number one, to seek the law of the Lord. Number two, to do it. Number three, to teach it. He prepared his heart to seek out the scriptures, to do them, and to teach them. Now I, can th- I think you can probably see the three-point sermon that's coming some way down the line in the series. But is that you? Whenever you come to read the Bible, do you prepare your heart? Or do you just pick it up and read it? Maybe I'll get something out of it today, maybe I won't. Well, if you don't, maybe it's because you haven't learned the example of Ezra. To take time first. In prayer. What's involved in preparing, preparing your heart? Well, most certainly confessing your sin and repenting of it. Asking the Lord to help you, confessing that you're going to need God's help now as you come to his word. Prepare your heart to seek it. Prepare your heart in order that you might do it. Because it's not just to be read, it's to be obeyed. And to teach it. And you may never be one who stands and teach, teaches. But you can teach it by doing it. And by being an example to others, can't you? What a significant statement that is about this man. Here is a man worth listening to. Because of the character that he had. Because of the fellowship that he had with his God. Yes, as an Old Testament believer. And not knowing and understanding all that you do about Christ. But nevertheless, as much as a man could be a believer in God in Old Testament days, Ezra was that man. We should listen to him and what he has to say. Because he's God's man. He's God's spokesman. For us today. And if you just look towards the end of chapter 7, you'll begin to see that from that point on, he begins to speak, I. So I, I, I. He's the author. He's writing. And from that point on, he, he said, I, it's, this is me and my experience and what, God, what my God has done. And that's why this book is so important and is going to be so helpful to us, I trust, as we make our way through it and into Nehemiah, which is the continuation of this part of Israel's history. So there's something of the, the, the historical context for us as we come to this portion of God's word. Now let's just remind ourselves of what happens right at the start. Let's read 
again verse 1 of Ezra. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Well, let's just pause there for a second. Okay, so, so what did Jeremiah say? Now, Jeremiah is God's prophet back in Jerusalem before the exile and during the exile. But he, remained, he, never, he never went to Babylon, Jeremiah. He stayed in Jerusalem. But what did he say? Now, to find out what Jeremiah said before this event, we actually have to go forwards in our Old Testament, and that might sound a bit strange. One of the confusing things about the Old Testament is that the book from beginning to end is not in date order. <laughs> it, it moves around all over the place in terms of date order. But the prophecy of Jeremiah is recorded with the books of the prophets after the books of history. So we have all the historical events recorded and then we have all the prophets recorded afterwards in our Bibles. So we go forward to the book of Jeremiah. But although we're going forwards in our Bibles, we're actually going back in history. Okay, I hope you can get your head around that. But it's important to understand. Although we're going forward, we're going back in history. Because this all took place in the past. Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 1 and 2. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah. Now we read about him in Chronicles, remember? They were two of the kings we read about in Chronicle, 2 Chronicles 36. Well, Jeremiah was the prophet back then. All of those kings who did evil in the sight of the Lord again and again. Jeremiah is standing up saying, listen to God. And they're saying, no. So the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar has just come to the throne in Babylon and God is speaking to Jeremiah. Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, and he speaks. Skip forward to verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, sorry, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, says God, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around. Nebuchadnezzar is in the first year of his reign. He probably hasn't even thought of this yet. But God knows all about it. And against these nations all around and will utterly destroy them, make them an astonishment, a hissing and perpetual desolations. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth, laughter 
and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones, the light of the lamp, this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. 70 years. That was prophesied the first year Nebuchadnezzar sat on the throne in Babylon. Even Nebuchadnezzar hadn't thought it up yet. But God knew. Nebuchadnezzar is a pagan king and a pagan nation. But in the hand of God, he's God's servant. Kind of makes you think, doesn't it? Look around world history today. It's all out of control and God is nowhere. Oh, you think so? Oh, you think so? Time to think again. That's why we pray for nations today. The sovereign God is over all things. All. All things. How and why did Nebuchadnezzar take the exiles into captivity and destroy Jerusalem? What led to the downfall of Babylon? How did the two kings, Cyrus and Darius, manage to forge such a successful alliance against them? If modern media had existed back then, you would have had all the world's news channels all over there, all of the political correspondents would have been bringing their live on-the-spot reports and all the political editors and speculators back home would have been sat in the studio providing their assessment of it all. What theories and conclusions they would have been suggesting, not one of them would have mentioned God. Not one of them would have had the slightest inkling that everything that is unfolding before their eyes is the hand of the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob at work fulfilling all of his will and purposes. Not one of them would have a clue. Even Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and Cyrus would never have dreamed that all of the political decisions that they were taking were all of God as he is dealing with his people Israel and that it's all part of his purposes that he would have born in Bethlehem in 500 years time the one who is the saviour of the world that's what God is doing right here in this story and is God any less involved in his world today? than in the two and a half thousand years that have elapsed since the story of Ezra. The Lord stirred up the heart, the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia. What precisely did God do in Cyrus and how did he do it? I can't tell you because I don't know. Neither did Ezra. But remember, these words... In this old stuffy book, these are God's inspired word. And God has deemed it sufficient for us to know that he stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, a pagan king, 
Now it's clear that Cyrus was very knowledgeable. He'd studied and learned his history. He had access to all of the documents and records that have been brought from Jerusalem, for example, and all the other nations that have been conquered. But he was God's instrument in God's hand. There's a well-known verse that many of you will know in the book of Proverbs in chapter 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. And that's true. It's true today. And that unveils the deepest cause of what fell into place and the king's insight that he had. It was all the result of what God was doing in the heart of this man. There's a Bible teacher called Alexander McLaren. He says this about this this event. The principle that's laid down by the writer of this book, Ezra, is of universal application. The true philosophy of history must recognise as all underlying all other so-called causes and forces, there is one uncaused cause. There is one uncaused cause. That is God. There is no one causing God to do anything. It is all of himself. There is nothing outside of God that is influencing him or moving him or persuading him. It is all of him. And he is the ultimate cause of it all. Of whose purposes even kings and politicians are executing God's will. Yes, they're acting freely according to their own judgments. And they may be completely unconscious of it, but they're acting according to God's will. And he says it should be something that affects our own calm and our own tranquility of soul to know that this is God and this is what God is doing and this is how God is working in his world. There is no one in this world who is able to act outside of God's influence. No one. No one. There is no one in this world who is able to act in a way that is contrary to God's will. No one. There's an enormous comfort in this truth, isn't there? That God is over all things. This whole story just demonstrates how sovereign God is in his world. Well, let's finally just see three important truths that we can learn just as we come to a close. A couple of, couple of important truths. First of all, knowing the truth is not enough. Now, given the things that Cyrus says about God in verses 2 and 3, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God has given me. Uh, May his God be with him, let him go and so on. The Lord God of Israel, he is God, verse 3. Did Cyrus become a believer? Well, I don't think so. At least not with the information that we have. Cyrus came from a background of polytheism. There are many gods and all of those gods each have their own place. They're all valid in their own way. 
and what he says about the king, uh, about the God of Israel, easily falls into that pattern of belief. All of those gods, all gods are relevant. They all have their place. They all have their function. They all have their purpose. You see, it's possible to believe that certain things are true, but not be a believer. And I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who falls into that category. Yes, you believe that there are lots of things that are true. Things that you read in the Bible, things that you hear from the pulpit. Yes, you believe it's true, but you're not a believer. Satan knows the truth about God and Christ. He doesn't deny the truth, but he denies God and he denies Christ, even though he knows the truth of them. Knowing the truth, even acknowledging the truth, is not enough to make you a believer. What is? Because maybe you're like Cyrus right now. There's loads of things that you hear said in church. And you agree with them. You can go along with them. But you're not yet a believer. Here's the thing. Do you know the one from whom that truth comes? That's the issue. Do you know the one who is himself the truth? That's the question. And that's what, will, that's what will change your life. Knowing the truths that Cyrus knew didn't really change him in the sense of transforming his life and making him a believer. Ezra, he knew the one from whom the truth came. Ezra knew the one who is himself the truth and the way and the life. It's only if you know Christ that your life can truly be changed. It's only if you know Christ that your life truly can be transformed. And as we continue and consider these stories and all of these events that took place, well, it's great to have all this knowledge in our heads. But ultimately, do you know God for yourself? Do you know this God, this sovereign God for yourself? Do you know the one who is the truth? The one who is able to deal with your sin. The one who is able to save you and redeem you from all your unrighteousness and from all of your sinfulness. Do you know him? The God of the Bible. As your own Lord and Savior that you might follow him all the days of your life and have your life totally transformed. Well, may the Lord help us greatly through the reading of his word. And as we grapple with these scriptures in the weeks ahead, may the Lord help us to understand more of who he is, what he has done, what he continues to do, and of the hope that we have in knowing that he is the sovereign God over all things.